You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Hello and welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I'm Sarah Custer, your host and editor of Campus, a best practice resource platform for the global higher education community brought to you by Times Higher Education and Inside Higher Ed. On this episode, we're talking about the Institute of Information, the Palace of Pondering, the Citadel of Silence, the Frontline of Fact-Finding, the High Command for All Things Digital, the Connector, Collector, and Collaborator. It's the University Library. Coming up, my colleague Miranda Prin speaks to Tony Carter, director of the CARES Library at Athens State University, about how faculty can work with librarians to improve their students' information literacy. But first, I interviewed Masood Coker, a third-generation librarian and computer scientist who has worked at institutions across the UK and is currently the librarian and keeper of the Brotherton Collection at the University of Leeds, where he's also the director of Learning Spaces. Musud is also the current chair of Research Libraries UK, a consortium of the 39 leading and most significant research libraries in the UK and Ireland. And by his account, he's the first person of color to lead a Russell Group library. Masood does some myth-busting for us around academic libraries, tells me how they can be agents of change, and what he sees are the steps to shaping a more diverse generation of upcoming librarians. Masood, welcome to the Times Higher Education Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Sarah. It's a real pleasure to be here. Tell us a little bit about, give us a, a quick introduction of, of who you are and what your career path has been to, to lead you to where you are right now. Oh gosh, that's been an amazing journey, personally speaking for me. Um, so uh, hi everyone, I'm Masood. Um, I'm the university librarian and keeper of the Brotherton Collection at the University of Leeds. And I'm also currently the chair of Research Libraries UK, which is a consortium of 39 research intensive libraries here in the UK and Ireland. Um, I have to say, I think libraries have been in my genes from the very beginning. And um, my, my grandfather was a school librarian and an English teacher. And my father uh, was one of nine siblings, so large family. And he's the only one who decided to pursue in my grandfather's footsteps and ultimately retired as the National Librarian of Pakistan, which is the highest position you can get there. And I'm the youngest of five siblings. So uh, when he realized that, that the other four have not really pursued or followed in his footsteps, he put all of his hopes in me and took me to the National Library when I was 13. And he showed me around and he showed me the stacks and all of the research collections. And I remember quite vividly saying to him, oh gosh, this seems like a really boring job. I don't want to ever work in a library. Uh, But what attracted me at that time was a software project, a computing project that was running in the National Library, which is about converting the catalog, the library catalog from uh, English to the national language Urdu. And I was fascinated by that and I was really intrigued by that. And I was like, what is that? I really want to learn more about computing and ultimately decided to choose computer science as my educational discipline. Um, And in some ways, it was also a little bit of a rebellion against libraries at that time. Uh, But that's not to say that libraries have not been in my 
life till that time. I loved reading as a child. I've loved reading fiction. I would go to the public libraries all the time. Uh, and fast forward my, my life a bit. I, I've done my degrees in computer science. I've done some private industry work. Um, I came to UK to do my PhD in computer science, uh, moved to Oxford and needed to find some part-time work. And one thing Oxford had plenty of was libraries. Go figure. And <laughs> exactly, absolutely. So um, I was like, oh, well, let's give it a try. Let's see how libraries are and whether my perception has, has been um, uh, based on a very, very single experience. So I, I remember going to social science library at Oxford and uh, basically uh, starting as a, a bookshelver and a library assistant to begin with. And uh, it made me realize two things. One, uh, I think academic libraries are very different to uh, national libraries. And um, there's a huge amount of interesting things that happen in terms of collections, in terms of research, in terms of education in terms of customer services. And secondly, uh, that even in well-established places, there's a big gap in digital thinking in libraries. And with my computing hat on, I started thinking, oh, okay, I think I can add real value here, bringing some of that thought process in and improving some of the processes and some of the ways we work. And um, at that time, the Bodden libraries were uh, moving their core infrastructure, their core systems from very old systems to a more modern system. And I became the software developer for that. So I started working on the systems migration, software development, discovery interfaces, and quite rapidly really enjoyed it, but also realized that this could be a career that I want to pursue in the long run. Um, so I worked in Oxford for some time during that time, I got married, um, and as as the tendency is, life events also determine how your career moves. So, um, in twenty seventeen, we had our first uh, child, a, a baby boy, and at that time, uh, in twenty eighteen, there was a job advertised at the University of York, as uh, which I I got, and I became the director of library and archives there. And then ultimately in 2021, um, moved to University of Leeds as the university librarian there. So that's a very long journey in hopefully a, a few minutes time. Uh, but it's been a real roller coaster. It was never really planned that way, but it just happened that way. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. It almost seems like you've fulfilled some sort of destiny that was written in the stars for you, Masood, as the son and the grandson of two librarians. So it was interesting when you were speaking, Masood, that you were saying the first time that your father took you to the National Library, you thought it was really boring and that it was something that you never wanted to pursue. And I think that, unfortunately, tends to kind of be people's conceptions of, of libraries, either within higher education or not. And you also said that you found that academic libraries are totally different to national libraries. So walk us through a few of the, the myths that exist around academic libraries. Uh, my memory of what a national library was at that time was very much based on a childhood memory. So I'm, I'm absolutely sure that there's been a significant amount of evolution since then. But generally speaking, there are still quite a few myths associated with um, libraries or academic libraries. 
uh, the very first of which is libraries are uh, only a place for books. And while that's true, we are absolutely uh, keen on having the right level of books and materials available. A lot of what we do is uh, about online resources and digital resources now. And that's something that's often overlooked because people don't get to see the sense of the library in that discovery. They get instantaneous access to resources, journals, publications, theses, but there's a lot of work that happens in the background through libraries that supports that. And would you, uh, would you say that that misconception exists even within the academic community that people think it's kind of just a place for books or do, do people realize just the, the digital information footprint that libraries have and hold? I think it's improving significantly, but yeah, I would say, yeah, generally, if you if you ask the broader academic community or the broader uh, public community, they will consider libraries as, as particularly a place for books or, or a place where students go to study. Uh, so it's about space and books. Um, increasingly, I think they are more aware of the facilities that the library provides to them digitally, um, particularly through access to resources, journals, publications. But it's not something that I would say would immediately come to people's minds when the word library is said to them. Interesting. What other what um, other myths would you like to bust? Yeah, I think the other one I would I would really like to talk about is um, that libraries are um, just about resources. And I think one of the best things we do is provide information resources. That is our bread and butter. But we are also places where that knowledge is connected with people, connected with ideas. And a lot of innovation happens in libraries. And that's really remarkable because new discoveries happen, new knowledge is created, secondary knowledge is used and recreated into primary knowledge. And that's often an underlooked aspect um, of libraries. Uh, a lot of creative work happens in libraries through new kinds of spaces, innovation labs, invention uh, studios, maker spaces. Uh, similarly, a lot of educational activities happen, whether that's about learning development, whether that's about student education, whether that's information literacies. A lot of research support happens through libraries, especially on the notes of open education and open research, significant policy changes, significant global endeavors on that front. Uh, and if your library also has a big cultural collection or special collection, which we have at the University of Leeds, then that opens up whole new areas of work in relation to how to preserve those collections, how to make them accessible, how to use those collections for new research and education, but also how to engage audiences in that, um, digital audiences, global audiences, local audiences, how do you do exhibitions, how do you engage audiences so they can have really enriched experiences. Yes, I've even heard uh, librarians speak about um, co-creating academic research, peer-reviewed papers with, with some of the academics and faculty that they work with at their institution. So I think um, what you were saying there, Masood, is that libraries really are quite central to the operation and, and business of a university and the purpose of delivering a higher education. But could you tell me a little bit more about kind of how you see where libraries sit in, in the operations of a university and also has that always been the case or are libraries evolving and, and kind of growing their influence in a university? Again, a great question. And 
really depends on the context of the institution or the country you're in uh, and how libraries have been established uh, over a period of time there. What I would say with, with a level of surety is that libraries are very much um, sitting at the heart of both the faculty but also the professional services side of the institution. And that creates some really exciting opportunities, but also sometimes some confusion around that as well. So picking up the University of Leeds libraries as an example, uh, we are both an academic unit and a professional services unit. There's a lot of research that happens from within the library, collections-based research, collections-based scholarship, digital scholarship. Uh, quite often we are uh, primary investigators or co-investigators on research grants. But at the same time, we are also running big services like uh, physical buildings of the libraries, customer services operations around that, supporting digital operations. And that creates an interesting dynamic where quite often libraries are the, and I, I don't like saying this, but libraries could be the neutral places on campus, which can really foster relationships between faculties and professional services. But at the same time, it creates this um, issue of where, where do we sit, where do we belong, the identity aspects of that. Uh, I would personally consider libraries as an academic unit first before professional services. And that's primarily because of the uh, enriched uh, aspects of research and education that we deal with. Uh, even when we engage with audiences, they're often linked with uh, research aspects or educational aspects in there. Uh, but that's not to undermine the huge contributions or huge learning that we have on professional services side. There are also interesting aspects of uh, different global uh, perceptions of libraries. So for example, in the US or in Canada, the libraries are primarily an academic unit. That's how they are perceived. They're librarians are perceived or at least librarians at a particular level are perceived as faculty in the uk mostly libraries are perceived as professional services but with some level of academic research happening or academic education happening a bit similar to what's happening in, uh, in australia and new zealand and then in africa and other places there are different aspects associated with uh, that based on the context that you're operating in but at its core, information is our business, knowledge is our business, and any higher education institution, uh, knowledge is our core business. So libraries fit right at the heart of that ecosystem of knowledge consumption, creation, preservation, and that is something that's very exciting about libraries. Mm. And what about um, for universities extension into the community? I've heard a, a couple of librarians now talk about um, libraries as a force for change and as agents of change. Do you see that uh, in terms of maybe even how you think about this in your role as a librarian at the University of Leeds? So absolutely on the civic, civic mission and I'll, I'll come to that in a second. But I think there's also something about our own confidence that I really want to bring over here, which is um, about libraries acting as leaders for the rest of the institution. And for far too long, I think the libraries have always been uh, considering themselves as a support agent. So an institutional mission is happening and the libraries will support that or someone else is doing something and the libraries will support that. 
and increasingly i think that, that that's changing and the libraries are thinking well actually we can be leaders we can shift certain perspectives here and some of the examples i can give on that particularly basing or basing it on university of leeds situation is um on the on our equity diversity inclusion agenda while there are some really good things happening across the institution we were one of the first ones who came out and said we want to develop an inclusive anti-racist library and actually let's let's try something let's do something in this area and improve the structural imbalances that have been there over a long period of time and we don't actually have to wait for someone else to tell us what to do and we can take leadership we can act as guiding agents for others across the institution as well and i really want to urge our listeners and uh, particularly if you're from libraries to really start taking that leadership role more on that front and the same applies to the civic mission side of the institution because libraries are often uh, either providing literacy support to our audiences or they have cultural endeavors that they're part of or they've got galleries or museums often in their remits as well. Uh, they allow us to really reach audiences in different ways that was simply not possible. Let's let's be open and honest about this for a minute because universities are big beasts in many, many ways. And um, if you go and speak with someone about all the brilliant research that's happening across the institution, it can be quite daunting for someone to really experience that. So how do you bring that in a very accessible fashion where people can use the libraries, a, a, a phenomenon that's known to everyone where they're being brought up as an entry point, as a gateway into the rest of the institution and to be able to make the research more accessible, the education more accessible, more easy to use, but also more entertaining in some ways as well. And one of the examples I give in this area is something that the library and our cultural institute and other parts of the institution did together in a uh, amazing celebration called Inspired by Bragg. And this was all about the Nobel Prize winners, uh, the Bragg uh, father and son uh, duo, and they've done some amazing research, but the public cannot really understand and interpret that at all times in the, in the way that they may be able to if and what we did was we engaged them through cultural activities we brought them on we showed them the nobel prize we really talked to them about what's happening in research in this particular field it's all about physics there and also we we developed a very nice uh, little book on how you can engage younger children with science and all that kind of stuff so those are the kind of things that can really engage people into the the core mission of the institution which is to change the society for the better that is that is our mission at, at its core. Um, so I think we have a great role in that. We have an absolutely uh, key responsibility in that and engaging schools in that conversation, I think just to remind them of what universities are all about can be an absolutely important step. Um, I don't know if you saw a, a news story in the past few days about um, some more of the conservative side of um, the UK press really going after a library at the University of Cambridge for having Lego workshops on campus to help alleviate students' stress during exam times. And that's just one example of how libraries can really get caught up in the culture wars. And a lot of some of those topics that you were talking about really have become flashpoints uh, within the culture wars. And I'm also thinking about libraries in high schools in the United States that are getting caught up in, in reading yeah. lists and banned books and all this stuff. 
what should be library's response to this? And is this something that you're concerned about? I'm not, okay. I'm concerned about it from a global perspective, but I'm also uh, really keen that we, as a library sector, really stand up to some of this. Um, it's really interesting because I quite often talk about the kind of polarized world that we are living in, the culture wars, but also the the way people behave now. If you if you don't agree with me, you're my enemy. Kind of feeling rather than uh, the kind of informed debate that people used to have, and we've lost the essence of that. We've lost the understanding of that, and there's a huge amount of misinformation out there, an absolutely tremendous amount of misinformation. And one of my core missions and one of library's core missions are actually to be um, act as sources of truth in any of these situations, to, to provide reliable, verifiable knowledge where people can trust that. And I feel like increasingly that globally is, is, is diminishing significantly and, uh, and we need to do something about it at scale and with a sense of urgency. I wasn't aware of the Cambridge story. I'm aware of all the other stories that have been happening about books are being banned and the reading lists are being modified. And when, when you actually dig deep into that, actually, none of that is really true, um, especially on the, on the banned book sites, at least here in the UK. Reading list changes are very common practice in academic disciplines, and that is what was happening. Um, I'm of the particular view that we shouldn't erase history. We should absolutely contextualize it and we should highlight what was wrong with that history. And I think there are different schools of thoughts on that, but that's, that's the one that I'm part of. And in that, I think there's a role and responsibility on libraries to really remind people what was part of our history, why that was right or wrong, what do we learn from that and how do we engage people in knowing that in the future? Knowledge, generation, creativity is not bound to any medium, whether that's Lego, whether that's books, whether that's a Kindle, whether that's a, a virtual reality goggle set or something completely different. The medium doesn't really matter to me. I think it's, it's about our core mission, which is creativity, knowledge, uh, truth, and for people to feel that knowledge is captured and consumed and recreated with a level of assurance that is not there anywhere else. So yeah, again, I would urge our listeners to provide their support to libraries in the way they generate and create that environment for knowledge and creativity to happen. You've mentioned um, libraries being leaders in the, the digital front and you yourself have, have a history, your, your background is computer science. How should libraries be positioning themselves to really respond to um, AI and the uh, the issues that come with that in terms of, well, choose your issue in terms of cheating or uh, misinformation or even some of the opportunities that it brings for academic research? Um, I think first and foremost, the libraries and higher education institutions should embrace it. That, that's where I would start. Uh, it's one of those amazing inflection points, in my view, where it can fundamentally shift the way we um, look at knowledge and we create knowledge and we consume knowledge. But it's also something that we have gone through in the past as well. Technological infl inflection points have happened previously as well. And uh, at in those moments, they felt like 
the whole world is going to shift and it's going to be impactful and there were lots of um, uh, fears associated with that but also a lot of utopia and the reality is always somewhere in the middle and uh, I think this would be one of those as well um, what's really fascinating about this is not the technology itself not artificial intelligence itself not large language models themselves they've been there for quite some time decades uh, people have been doing that research people have been doing that it's the accessibility of that technology that's making a real difference it's the public access accessibility that's generated that debate and people have suddenly realized the power that these technologies could bring but at the same time we also have to realize that these are technologies that are not operating in the same way as a human brain does and therefore there's a lot of hallucination there's a lot of uh, adjustment that's needed there's a lot of non-verifiable information in there so if i if i just talk a little bit about my concerns i think ai hallucination would be the very first one can you tell there's me what what is what is ai hallucination yeah so this is this is where uh, really interesting large language models things happen because at, at their core they are basically a, a prediction model they predict what's the best next word that's going to happen it it's not based in its truth i think that's that's the key thing which means that if i ask it a question about tell me a bit about masood koker it will generate something because it it will generate that based on prediction of what the next word should be rather than is it based in facts is it not based in facts that do i actually know who masood koker is if there are five masood kokers which one am i talking about all of that kind of stuff all of the biases are built into some of these things as well because it's all based on the data that is collected mostly from the internet which is already an extremely biased data set so it's it's fascinating because i did a, an experiment on this and i said okay um i'm a a, a pakistani born british person living in uh, england what job should i choose as my career and it gave me very very typical engineering it etc etc and then i said oh sorry i made a mistake i'm a woman rather than a man uh, can you tell me what job should i go for and suddenly the order of the jobs it was showing me were more into healthcare more into administration and more into other things and i said oh actually i'm really sorry i, I don't identify with any gender what job should i go with and it immediately gave me all the job options for uh, related to equality diversity inclusion i'm wow. like there's so deeply enriched biases that are in those models at this time that they will they'll create some real issues at societal level um so yeah hallucinations biases um students uh, particularly if i talk it about it from a academic library view point I think students can use it to generate content claim it as their own. Now I'm of the view that that's okay as in they can use these tools to improve what they do rather than claim it as their own from the very beginning. But banning these tools is not the right answer. It's not going to happen. We can't fight the the societal change that's going to come with this. There's one prediction that um AI is going to impact on 2/3 of all of the jobs. that are out there not to say that it will replace them it will impact on them in one way or another there's no running away from that so let's embrace it let's build those digital literacies let's build those artificial intelligence literacies start bringing our students our uh, communities in that fold 
but also remind them of the issues that are there. Uh, quite often people live either in utopia or dystopia. I'm somewhere in the middle and say, let's, let's bring people back into that middle ground about what the technological capabilities can help us achieve while also recognizing some of the issues that come with that. One last comment, if I may add, uh, is that this is also just the beginning of the public access. So once public starts seeing that, things can only improve. Um, and we, we must also recognize what do these benefits come at the cost of? So there always has to be a cost-benefit relationship here. And in many cases, people are really uh, discussing the sustainability aspects of this, the environmental aspects of this, the societal impact. Is the society ready to embrace the change at the pace the technological change is happening? I think those would be some really important questions. And we haven't really even spoken about digital poverty. Are these opportunities going to be available to all people in the same way and at the same level? I think I can very safely say no. Uh, and that's a real shame. Um, just just picking up on some of the facts that were there even before uh, the real influx of AI happened recently, I think over a million people in the UK uh, did not have any digital inclusion in, in their day. I think huge numbers of older generations don't use online banking at the moment and increasingly life is becoming completely digital in many of those platforms so they are absolutely excluded the secondary avenues the physical avenues are completely gone now so yeah we have major digital inclusion issues already and this is going to just accelerate that and further ex extenuate that so huge huge amount of effort needs to be done on that front um, including access to core resources. So that means good Wi-Fi, good, good platforms, good devices to use this stuff on, but more fundamentally digital literacies as well. What does it mean to use it? Digital well-being as well, especially in today's day and age where the world is extremely polarized online particularly, and then it, social media has had its own impact. It's, it's all, there's so many case studies that highlight how algorithms are taking us towards more radicalization as well. So all of those things really need to be embedded into more digital and artificial intelligence literacies, and it, it's part of all of our roles. Masood, we, we started off our conversation talking about your career trajectory that got you to this point where you are today. I want to talk uh, towards the end of this now just about kind of the upcoming generation, the future generation is, of librarians. I believe you, you've said in another outlet that you were uh, the first non-white librarian at a Russell Group institution. Can you tell me a little bit about why you think there's such a lack of diversity in the UK's top institutions and what you think needs to change to improve that? As far as I know, I'm still the only person of color in a Russell Group institution in the university librarian role. Um, it was a bit of a surprise to me when I learned that, uh, and I've not done extensive studies to, to know that. It's just based on asking people, looking around. Uh, it, it felt very strange and a bit lonely, in all honesty. And then I started doing a bit more work into this area, trying to understand why there hasn't been more racial diversity at the top. And um, when I started doing more of that work, I started speaking with a lot more people of color at minoritized ethnic um, staff members and recognized that um, that there's not often an issue of diversity 
in the overall library workforce, but there is an absolute issue when it comes to where they are situated. And quite often they are situated in very junior grades. So library assistant grades are, are up to middle management at the most, typically speaking. And I remember this as a um, reality check actually for myself when I was speaking with a few colleagues and I was saying, oh, how can I really help build more leadership capacity? And they reminded me that they actually don't even have management capacity at the moment, let alone leadership capacity. So there's a long way to go in that. Having said that, what's really inspiring is that there are a lot more conversations happening around this topic in the UK. There are people who are emerging in this area, including my, my own deputy university librarian at University of Leeds, uh, Josh Sandel, who's a, a black gentleman. And we are seeing more people now emerging out of those places, um, just recognizing their talent and giving them the opportunities and they will thrive in those situations. There are more conversations happening. There's more recognition across sectoral bodies. And if I just say this on behalf of Research Libraries UK, we are part of a, a case study at the moment um, or a, a project called the Emerging Leaders Survey or Emerging Leaders Program. And in collaboration with Connell and Silip and Valve and Skull, which are lots of other and Libraries Connected, lots of other organizations, and with huge thanks to Arts Council England as well, they're all trying to recognize what what are the barriers in that leadership journey and therefore what can we do to develop an emerging leaders program particularly for those with uh, racial minorities to support them into that next step into leadership so i think i'm i'm very optimistic about the future uh, i think more can be done absolutely but that there are definitely good steps happening in this area masood thank you so much for your time today i really appreciate it Oh, it's been a real pleasure, Sarah. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you so much for everyone who's listening. And I can talk about this topic forever and ever, uh, but it's a real pleasure to be here and to be able to share some of my thoughts. Now on to a conversation Miranda Prynne, our deputy editor at Campus, had with Tony Carter at Athens State University. Tony gives advice on how faculty can collaborate with librarians to help students think critically about which sources of information they trust. Hi, Tony. Great to have you join us on the podcast today. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you to talk about university libraries and the role of the librarian. I believe you must have now worked in the library sector for about 20 years. Is that correct? That's correct. Not yes. wishing to give away your age. <laughs> but um, okay. over that period, I just I imagine the role has changed a huge amount and the role of libraries has changed a huge amount. Can you talk us through that, James, just in brief terms and, and what you now see as your core functions? Sure. You know, in my experience, in my personal experience, um, starting out, you know, the librarians, you know, they would you would buy the books, you would you'd make sure you had the collections, you would do some instruction, 
you know, teach students about information literacy, even 20 years, you know, 15, 20 years ago. What I have seen as a change is the, the involvement of librarians in faculty research. And, you know, now you have, you have um, things like scholarly communication librarians who, who are helping faculty navigate the, the publishing industry or the publishing world, which has changed itself quite a bit. You've got librarians that focus on the data, um, helping faculty to store the data that they create through their research. Um, so it's become, it, it's become much more of a, it's becoming more of a collaboration, I guess you could say, more so than I've seen before between teaching faculty, research faculty, and librarians. Yeah, which is interesting because that really goes against the grain of, I think, how people perhaps not in the know on this might perceive it in a digital age. It could easily be assumed by some who sort of view the library with that very traditional vision of a big building full of books, that it's less relevant in a digital age. And yet, actually, from what you say, librarians are becoming more and more integral to the work of every branch of the university and obviously becoming more and more specialized because of that you mentioned scholarly communications specialists for instance yes um, um it, you know I, I think back you know back when the internet started and people said well we don't need librarians anymore um well then you realize that you've got all this information that you've got to know what's good and what's not good and what's what you can believe um and and so librarians didn't go away then and even though we buy more ebooks and we have more digital collections, you're right. Our, we are more relevant than ever when it comes to any kind of information in general and helping people with doing their research, helping faculty doing their research. Yeah, and that brings us on very nicely to something I really wanted to delve into today, which is this issue of information literacy which seems to be pretty core to a few of the things you've just mentioned there, but the kind of the role of librarians more broadly in an age where we're all confronted across all sectors, not just higher education, but you know, for a researcher, this may be particularly pertinent. We're all confronted with information overload and everyone is also aware of you know, issues around misinformation or fake information. So, Taking that into account, I know you have a lot of experience in teaching information literacy, but can you first explain what you see that as, um, but also how is that evolving and how do you manage that in this digital information-led world? Well, a very basic, a very basic definition of information literacy is the ability and the skills to find, evaluate and use information. That's a very broad definition, and it's. I think it almost oversimplifies such a complex concept. But over the years, yes, you know, we again going back. First, you had the internet, and that totally changed the publishing world. So back before then, you know, it was pretty easy to figure out, okay, you had newspapers, you had magazines, you had peer-reviewed articles, peer-reviewed journals, but now everything is looks like everything else online. You can't tell what you're looking at, and that's only gotten 
I don't want to say worse, it's just increased over the years. And then we went through the fake news um, years, which that's still around. And now we have AI, which is new. Well, it's not, I guess, yeah, it's new to information literacy. So I feel like that as a librarian, I've been continuously trying to stay caught up, try to keep pace with what's going on digitally, what the internet's doing, what people are doing. And it really, to me, comes down, it still comes down to fundamentals as far as, you know, if you if you know how to, if you know the skills, which, you know, you can learn them from librarians, you can learn them from your faculty, you can learn them online, there's good resources online. If you know the skills to evaluate information, you should be able to do that across the board. It will get, it's going to get trickier with AI, obviously, but the basic ideas should translate, but yeah, it's pretty messy. And um, when you're teaching, it has become teaching source evaluation. I think about when I used to teach it in class, how to evaluate a source. And it was basically, you had your popular sources, like newspapers and magazines, and you had your scholarly sources. Now there's so much overlap. It's, it's almost impossible to do categories. It's not black and white. There's a lot of, there's all gray. It's all gray area now. So I think that looking forward, we just have to remember there are basic skills and ideas that you can use for all and to evaluate all types of information. Can you talk us through what some of those skills might be? I mean, how do you help students confront this flood of information in front of them and, and, and evaluate sure. it? Well, there's a few ways, you know, if we're talking about for us, like in class, you know, you've got your personal life, you've got your school life. If you're talking about for assignments, for instance, there's a there's a few ways. The first thing is that the faculty have to engage students with the types of information they want them to use. They can't just say, go find this. They need to be having discussions and in in with students about this topic. And if they're uncomfortable, or if they don't feel like they can do that, they can bring in the librarian who can have these conversations. Some specific skills though, one is, is called lateral reading. Um, there's, if you, if you do some searches online, you'll find quite a bit. And it's basically the idea that, you know, when you read a search, when you read a source, you're reading it vertically from top to bottom, and you're not comparing it to any other source. The idea of lateral reading is that you open those different tabs in your browser and you start looking at that topic in all these different ways. Does that information, are you seeing similar things in all those different sources that that back up the first source? So that that is one way that um, that you could you can talk about this with students is basically. Are you know? Are you looking at other sources that say similar things, or is this source way out there? So, um, but to me, it goes back to talking to students, making sure that they understand what types of information you want they want you want them to use, and some strategies on how to find that specific type of information. Yeah. So it requires a proper brief. From, from the educator yes. responsible. I'm interested by the lateral reading because you mentioned that AI is now 
becoming an increasing consideration in sourcing information, in the reliability mm -hmm. of information from both, I guess, the student and the staff perspective. So would you say lateral reading is perhaps also quite a useful tool when it comes to assessing if the source of something is likely to be AI or indeed well-researched information <laughs> by a human? What, what, do, you, do you think it can play a role? Sure. I, I'm not an expert in AI, I can tell you that. But if, if there's a source that was created through AI, there's no way for us to, how do you know if something was created by AI if you're looking at it, unless it tells you? You probably don't. So you're pretty much going to do the same processes that you would do for any other types of information. I can't think of a, and it may be developed, it, it may come in time, but I don't know of any special strategy beyond what we already do to evaluate or to tell that would be evaluating something that would be different. I think it's a really pertinent point and it's true in that no one else has yet provided a magic solution to this. There are obviously AI checkers, but they're they're far from perfect in terms of their accuracy and they only look at certain metrics. But actually, I guess what you're saying is that indeed something like lateral reading, or if you take it in a broader sense, reading around a topic and not relying on just one source is probably the key to this yeah. because the more you accrue information details knowledge from different places the more you probably can identify if something maybe is a little less reliable yes that is that is what i'm trying to say yes and you know i think of it like if you're scrolling through facebook or somewhere and you know you've chosen what you want to follow and if you're not looking anywhere else if you're only looking on that Facebook scroll or your Facebook feed, there could be a lot of stuff you're missing out on. There could be inform there could be things that would could show you that maybe some of that information isn't as reliable as you think it is. And that goes into this whole idea of bias confirmation, you know, choosing to look at things because you're looking for an answer that you want. So you choose to look at sources that give you that particular answer. And that also plays into this idea of looking, you know, being open, being flexible. Let's look at other sources to see what they have to say. Yeah, that really come, is one of the most basic tenets of good academic practice. And I guess one of the things that, that you would see as your role to really push. Um, where does data literacy fit into all this because we hear this term talked about a lot in our jobs and the struggles that people in all areas of universities face when trying to store assess use data do you see that as part of information literacy or is it a slightly separate thing well I think to, in my mind, you know, if you were to read different sources, they might tell you different things. And, and what I would say is that it's information. So it would fall, it could fall under the umbrella of information literacy. And it does require, I, I, I've seen, there are libraries that offer 
I've worked at one that began offering data literacy workshops or workshops on, you know, specific aspects of how to use data, how to do visual visualizations, all of that, because it's not, it wasn't being offered anywhere else on campus. So, um, and with the flood of data that we have, if you look, if you're online and you look at a pretty chart and you have, if you have no idea of knowing if that, you know, you, you need to know how to be able to read that. And that is a, that is a very sophisticated skill. But I do know that there are, like I said, there libraries have taken that on to a degree, but not across the board. Yeah. So that's a, a growing. It area. is. It is a growing area. Um, going back to the tricky question of how one can coach, help, guide students to assess information, would you say critical thinking is a growing component of what would have traditionally been called library skills? I think that's the foundation of it. And over my years of teaching information literacy courses and arts, you know, classes, that's the getting students to think critically about information is the hardest part because I think I've mentioned before, it's easy to put things in categories. You know, this is, these are good sources. These are bad sources or, you know, these, that's how, that's how we used to do it. But now that doesn't play, that doesn't fit. And so how you go about I, there's many, many, I've tried many, many different lesson plans and librarians do conferences on these things, on how to teach students to think critically about sources. So I guess to answer your question, it's, it's the under, it's the whole thing. I should have mentioned it earlier. Critical thinking critically about sources is, is the main goal here. And um, what, in terms of boosting critical thinking, what would be your practical tips for a professor on how to encourage critical thinking in relation to information? Sure. Uh, so practical tips would be going all the way back to assignments, writing assignments, and the types of sources that you want students to use. Um, what librarians often see are students will come in and they will have their assignment, and their assignment will have a list of sources they can use with no explanations of why they need to, like you need to use peer reviewed sources or, you know, you need to use a book or you can't use, you know, you can't use these types of sources. And and they're just rule, they're just these, this guidelines here, these, these things that students can and can't do. There, there's no critical thinking there. So, you know, if, if faculty could work with librarians you know, and finding this is the hard part is it's, you know, a lot of times faculty don't want to give librarians, you know, it takes away from their class time. But we do offer a lot of things online now. We have tutorials and videos to help explain the information creation process, how something is created often leads to how it might be used or talking about authority it's contextual. These are these are all ideas that students are completely missing 
if they're only getting a list of use these types of sources. There needs to be more conversation about, okay, so, so why are we using these? Why are these types of sources important? To me, that is, if, if faculty would give just a little bit more time to that, that would help students in that class and throughout the rest of their life. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that sort of multidisciplinary, really, that skill, it kind of crosses all it does. subjects. It does, yes. And, and that's a good point, keeping in mind also that when you are teaching a course, they may have learned in another course that, that, okay, it's okay to use these types of sources. And then they're in your course and they're like, nope, you can't use those. And they're going to be like, well, why? So those are, you know, everything has context here. And so it's having students understand why they're being asked to use sources, why this is the right type of source or the best type of source or whatever. That is to me, that's the most practical thing you can do. And in terms of the students themselves, what level of awareness do they bring in terms of understanding the nature of sources and reliable sources or potentially unreliable sources and where to look for accurate information? I would say that it's when you go back and talk about critical thinking, they are not, they're coming in with ideas such as, I can't use Wikipedia, you know, because my because my high school teacher told me I can't use Wikipedia because anyone can edit it. That's the sort of inf that's the sort of information literacy that, that I have seen. So it is very very basic, and oftentimes it's not really correct <laughs> um, because you know you could make the argument well Wikipedia you can look at their resource you can look at their source list and there's a lot of good stuff in the you know reference list. So they're coming in with these non-critical ideas about information, about what I can use and what I can't use. So just assume, and I would assume this even for, you know, third year students, fourth year students, that they, they need your help. They need a librarian regardless, if regardless of what course it is, regardless of um, if they're graduate students, their needs change and they need a librarian to help them navigate the types of sources they're working with at that time. I wanted to briefly touch on your thoughts on kind of automation versus human library support. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on where that division should lie? It's funny you say that because we are, you know, we do have a virtual chat service that we librarians are on most of the day. And it gets a lot of use, but it does also take up a lot of time. So, um, you know, if, if you're a librarian, you probably know about LibGuides. Most libraries use LibGuides and LibAnswers. They have a chatbot now. They just introduced a chatbot that that is fed by one of the things by our frequently asked questions. So what we can do is we can create a very robust frequently asked questions you know, have that feed into the bot. But, and so that could answer those really quick questions. But anything beyond, anything beyond a single answer, yes or no, or where are you, or what's a database, you, those skills you have to have, I believe, a human 
whether it be online, through a video, in person, because every everything, every information literacy question, everybody's situation is different. They're going to be looking for different types of sources. They're going to be needing different subjects. So I, I don't know if anything has been invented that could help students at the level that humans can. I, you know, I don't know if if administrators may think that's the case. I don't know. Um, but I do know that I've not seen anything that would be anywhere close to what that human interaction, how that can help students. Brilliant. Well, that's all we've got time for today, sadly, because I would love to keep talking to you about all things university libraries. But thank you so much for joining us today, Tony. It's been wonderful chatting to you. Oh, it's been great. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of the Times Higher Education Podcast. Thank you to Masood and Tony for joining us for this episode and to you for listening. If you would like to find more resources about university libraries or anything else to do with best practice in global higher education, go to www.timeshighereducation.com forward slash campus. We'll see you next time. You're listening to a Times Higher Education Podcast.